Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, March 12th, 2023. My name is Bill McCann. I'll start with the featured story, Inside the Blood Sport of Oscar Campaigns. War Rooms, Oppo Dumps, Eight-Figure Budgets, How the Quest for Award Season Glory Got So Cutthroat. This is a story by Irina Alexander. Depending on how closely you've been following the Oscar race this year, you may or may not know the name of Andrea Risenborough. Before January 24th, few outside of the film industry did. An actress from northeastern England, Riseborough, began her career in theater and has worked steadily since. At 41, she's appeared in more than 30 films, including Birdman, Battle of the Sexes, and The Death of Stalin. People like to say that the only reason she isn't famous is that she inhabits roles so completely she becomes unrecognizable. But on Tuesday, January 24th, Riseborough was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar alongside Kate Blanchett, Michelle Williams, Anna de Armas, and Michelle Yeo. No one predicted Riseborough's nomination. She didn't appear on Pundit's shortlist. There were no profiles of her in glossy magazines. To Leslie, the film about an alcoholic West Texas lottery winner for which she was nominated had earned just $27,322 at the box office. Within 24 hours, the reaction to Riseborough's nomination went from surprise to scrutiny to backlash. It turned out that a small army of movie stars had championed Riseborough. Charlize Theron, Jennifer Aniston, Sarah Paulson, and Gwyneth Paltrow hosted screenings. Others praised Riseborough's performance on social media and beyond, including Edward Norton, Susan Sarandon, Helen Hunt, Patricia Clarkson, Pedro Pascal, Demi Moore, Jamie Lee Curtis, Bradley Whitford, Jane Fonda, Mia Farrow, Kate Winslet, Alan Cumming, Rosanna Arquette, and even Blanchett. The campaign was described as organic and grassroots, but some celebrities had posted suspiciously identical language, describing to Leslie as a small film with a giant heart. That Viola Davis, the woman king, and Danielle Deadweiler, Till, were not nominated despite predictions to the contrary, made it look as if a bunch of actors campaigned on behalf of a white actress, leading to the exclusion of black actresses. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Oscars governing body, opened an investigation. Oscar campaign regulations forbid direct lobbying, and it turned out that some of Riseborough's supporters, including Mary McCormick, who is married to Michael Morris, the director of To Leslie, had encouraged Academy members to watch the film and publicly endorse Riseborough's performance. Cynthia Schwartz, an awards strategist working on films including Tar, Elvis, Women Talking, Till, and Avatar, The Way of Water, 
told me the campaign inspired her to look up the definition of lobbying, which is not comprehensively defined in the Academy's campaign regulations. I don't believe Academy members should be posting about how they're going to vote, Schwartz said, or urging others to vote in a certain way. Tony Angelotti, a consultant on the Fablemans, put it less mildly. There are very specific rules about direct outreach, he said. Clearly here, those rules were broken. Neither the director nor his wife are members of the Academy, but consultants I spoke to said it didn't matter. A couple joked that it was a little like the January 6th insurrection. President Donald Trump may not have personally stormed the Capitol, but he encouraged others to do so. In February, the Academy announced that Riseboro's nomination would stand, promising to clarify its regulations after the awards. But the controversy reminded everyone of the reality of the Oscars, that despite the big show of sealed envelopes being delivered via handcuffed briefcases, the votes in Hollywood, as in Washington, D.C., are a result of a highly contingent political process handed down not from movie gods, but from the very people who stand to benefit from it. To say that Andrea Riseborough took a nomination away from Viola and Danielle, you cannot have this conversation without having the whole conversation, said a campaign strategist with a film in the race. You have to look at it. Okay, well, what money was spent on the other campaigns and who's spending it? This is just the tip of the iceberg. Oscar campaigns are often run by professional strategists, essentially a specialized breed of publicists. Their job begins as early as a year before the awards, sometimes before a film is even shot. They advise on which festival a film should premiere at, shape a campaign platform, and hope that the film gains enough momentum to propel it into awards season. Sometimes several strategists work on a single film and the war room of an Oscars campaign can grow to as many as 10 or 20 people. All the stops along the campaign trail, screenings, events, other award shows are an opportunity to workshop talking points and gauge the competition. And unlike the Golden Globes, which are voted on by 199 entertainment journalists, the Oscars electorate is a voting body of about 10,000 industry peers, which is nearly double what it was before the hashtag Oscars so white controversy that began in 2015. The Oscars race is split into phases one and two, before and after the nominations, which is akin to the divide between the presidential primaries and the general election. Phase two is all about honing your narrative and defining yourself in the race. Leah Yardum, who is working with a couple best picture nominees this year and told, told me some narratives form themselves, but others are, I don't want to say crafted by us, but they form themselves and we amplify them. Think about everything you know about this year's Oscar nominees and chances are it was proliferated by a, an awards consultant. Top Gun Maverick saved the movie business with its nearly $1.5 billion at the box office. Everything, everywhere, all at once is the exuberant sci-fi romp that created some much-needed opportunities for Asian-American actors. 
All Quiet on the Western Front, is the biggest anti-war film ever, despite still technically being a war film. Vote for The Fablemans if you love Spielberg and the movies, and Tar if you want to go with the unanimous critics pick. Every year, everyone goes into a campaign and armed with statistics. Oh, the statistics, Yardim told me. An Asian actress has never been up for an Oscar, so vote for Michelle Yao. It's her time. Did you know Jamie Lee Curtis has never been nominated? She's due. Spielberg hasn't won a Best Picture Oscar since 1994. Is it helpful to know that gas prices were the last time he won? What, ga what gas prices were the last time he won? A strategist has that handy. One dollar and eleven cents a gallon. Narratives don't always work, but a good narrative can triumph over a bad movie. Just consider the moving comeback of Brendan Fraser, who was nominated for his performance in The Whale, a movie that was panned by critics. Negative narratives are usually attributed to the diabolical workings of rival strategists. The stories about abusive directors, overblown budgets, whether the real people behind biopics should really be celebrated. See a beautiful mind. They try to change someone else's narrative by adding dirt to the lair, Angelotti told me, citing the old rumor that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck didn't really write Goodwill Hunting. A more recent example that strategists still talk about is when Green Book was up for Best Picture in 2019. The week the nomination ballots went out, a story resurfaced about the director of the movie, Peter Farley, and a joke he used to play 20 years earlier that involved exposing himself. Farley apologized the same day. The film still won, but many believe another Best Picture campaign planted the story. Everyone in the industry insists that negative campaigning has become less prevalent than it used to be. And yet when a veteran strategist, strategist with a client in the race told me how opportunistic it was for the Everything Everywhere All at Once cast to visit the site of the Monterey Park shooting on the eve of the nomination announcements, I'm pretty sure I got to experience it firsthand. Do they not know the shooter is Asian? The strategist asked, it's not a racially motivated crime. For those paying attention to this year's narratives, it was not a mystery where the backlash to Risenborough's nomination was coming from, or the backlash to the backlash articulated by Christina Ricci, represented by the same public relations firm as Risenborough, in a now-deleted Instagram post. Quote, seems hilarious that the surprise nomination, meaning tons of money wasn't spent to position this actress, of a legitimately brilliant performance is being met with an investigation, Ricci wrote. So it's only the films and actors that can afford the campaigns that deserve recognition? Suddenly, being backed by a studio had become a negative narrative of its own. Many awards consultants spoke to me on the condition of anonymity, because they didn't want to face repercussions from their studio bosses. Others didn't want to be seen as taking credit. We prefer to be invisible, a strategist working on several films this year told me, 
And yet here they were, seemingly sparring out in the open. Oscar campaigning has been around as long as there have been Oscars, but the modern playbook was invented by Harvey Weinstein at Miramax in the late 1980s and early 90s. Weinstein popularized the practice of sending out VHS screeners, demanded that actors clear their schedules for award season, and relentlessly lobbied Academy members. Studios generally held their noses at aggressive campaigning, but Weinstein, unable to compete with their budgets, wasn't above a shameless publicity stunt. For my left foot, one of his first Oscar campaigns, he got Daniel Day-Lewis to go to Capitol Hill to speak with lawmakers about the Americans with Disabilities Act. For Il Postino, a 1994 Italian language film about a mailman who befriends the Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, he persuaded more than a dozen celebrities, including Julia Roberts, Samuel L. Jackson, and Madonna, none of whom appeared in the film, to record poetry readings for the film's soundtrack. The thing that's horrible when you think about it is Harvey was really persistent, said Cynthia Schwartz, who helped run Miramax award cam awards campaigns for more than 10 years. He wouldn't take no for an answer from a celebrity to do a poetry reading or wear a Marquesa address. Knowing what we know now, it's chilling and frankly scary to think how far that behavior extended. He was always asking celebrities for things and being extremely aggressive about it. Weinstein was widely rumored to wage whisper campaigns against his competitors. The last time Spielberg won a Best Director Oscar was in 1999 for Saving Private Ryan, which lost an epic behind-the-scene battle for Best Picture to Miramax's Shakespeare in Love. For Harvey, campaigning was a blood sport, and I don't think it had ever been a blood sport before, Terry Press, who was then Spielberg's head of marketing at DreamWorks, told me. Everybody wants to win, but Harvey wanted to win and kill everything else. Many of the top consultants working today came out of the Miramax school, including Schwartz. Angelotti and Lisa Talback, who went in-house at Netflix in 2018. A number of regulations that the Academy has issued since then to police campaigning have been in response to tactics pioneered by Weinstein. Today, Campaigners can reach out to Academy voters only via approved mailing houses and only once a week. And if a reception accompanies a screening, it may only provide non-excessive food and beverage. In phase two, no food or drink is allowed at all, including water. I think the Academy is full of it sometimes with this stuff. A strategist with several films in the race told me, you know, people have jobs. If you want them to see a movie at 7 p.m. and they're coming from work, give them some popcorn and a water. My God, what are you trying to prove? I'm of the opinion that you could buy someone the most expensive lobster dinner and it's not going to change the way they vote. The only thing it might do is entice them to come see the movie. Maybe. The campaign industry that exists today has grown with and around the rules. With mailed screeners no longer permitted, films are typically uploaded to the Academy's online screening room at a cost of $20,000.
Because campaigners can't contact Academy members directly, they try to reach them other ways, such as with $90,000 cover ads in the trades and paid email blasts through the guilds. Then there are the endless screenings, live score performances, dinners, trade roundtables, precursor awards, and special magazine issues. This publication also does one, all a part of a symbiotic ecosystem that is fed by the awards business. Once streaming platforms entered the arena and the best picture category grew to 10 films, the campaign business expanded. Whereas a major studio might spend anywhere from 5 million to 25 million on an Oscar campaign, Netflix was estimated to deploy upward of 40 million on Roma in 2019, more than double the film's production budget. The following year, Netflix spent a reported 70 million on its Oscar campaigns, which included Marriage Story and The Irishman. A Netflix representative described those estimates as inaccurate. Sometimes campaign spending has less to do with securing nominations than awards hungry talent. When there's a race for the biggest names in the business, part of that is, how are you going to support my film? An awards consultant told me. All of this is further reinforced by financial incentives. A nomination means that an actor's or director's fee goes up considerably. And the awards consultants who deliver those nominations get bonuses, upwards of $25,000 for a Best Picture nomination, another 50000 for a win. Winning awards has become the guiding principle of our industry, and it's what's destroying it. Amanda Lundberg, the chief executive of 42 West, which is working on the Top Gun Maverick campaign, told me. The publicity firm also consulted on to Leslie until December when another firm took it over. It's gotten to a place where every single filmmaker thinks their movie is an award contender. Last year, Lundberg had a meeting with a filmmaker who wanted to discuss a best picture campaign, but hadn't yet shown Lundberg the actual film. It's like we're award fetchers, she said. Like you could just order that with me as if I'm 1-800-OSCAR. Lundberg worked for Miramax starting in 1988 and again beginning in 2002. Despite all the new Academy regulations, Lundberg believes the appetite for Weinstein tactics is as insatiable as ever. Here's the thing, she said. Everybody hates Harvey. and He's in jail, and he should be. He's a criminal, and he raped people. But people liked his results, and they still want them. Lundberg continued. People are desperate to win awards, and we've guided it here because we've rewarded it with money and prestige. So what happens when people want something that's limited? Do the math. It causes all sorts of behavior and people lose where that line is. Riseborough may not have secured her nomination if it weren't for the complex math behind how nominations are tabulated. In phase two, Oscar winners are voted on by the entire Academy. But in phase one, with the exception of Best Picture, they're selected by their peers. 
that is, actors nominate actors, directors nominate directors, and so on. Members of the acting branch list their top five choices in order of preference, but not all of them vote. In other words, you don't need the whole academy to like you, only actors, and only a small fraction of them. Much of the criticism leveled at the Rise Borough campaign has been about how strategic it seemed despite being described as organic. McCormick encouraged her social circle to post about the film daily, a directive that the actress Frances Fisher, she played Kate Winslet's mother in Titanic, seemingly took to heart. She posted about Riseboro almost every day during the week of nominations voting. Hello, actors, branch of the Academy, Fisher wrote on Instagram, addressing the voters directly. In another post, Fisher broke down the math of just how few of their votes it would take to get Riseboro nominated, citing a story in Deadline Hollywood. Hashtag Andrea Riseboro can secure an hashtag Oscar nomination if 218 out of 1,302 actors in the actors branch nominate her in first position for hashtag best actress. The Academy disputes the accuracy of those numbers. Fisher declined to comment. And though campaign regulations forbid mentioning competitors by name, Fisher urged the acting branch to choose Riseboro because it seems to be that Viola, Michelle, Danielle, and Kate are a lock for their outstanding work. A Best Actress campaign can run to $5 million. There's no question that the distributor of To Leslie, Momentum Pictures, didn't spend that. The movie itself was made for less, and Riseboro and Michael Morris helped pay for the campaign themselves. Still, PR firms were hired, a social media campaign was organized, and several people worked their phones to drum up support, including McCormick and McCormick's and Riseboro's manager, Jason Weinberg, whose roster of clients includes some of the movie stars who endorse the actress. Hand-to-hand -hand combat, as this style of campaigning is known, is not unheard of. Everybody does it consultants told me, but they're usually less overt about it. You know, it wasn't just, we're the little engine that could, a seasoned strategist with a few clients in the race told me. It was more than that. The thing with actors is that they tend to like a certain kind of performance, big, physical, and full of interesting choices, all of which Riseboro's is. Kate Winslet, called it the greatest performance by a female actor she had ever seen. The actors who campaigned for Riseboro probably believed they were simply championing an overlooked and worthy performer. Is it possible that some didn't know they were violating regulations? Of course it's possible. Have you seen what happens when actors come together for a cause? It can be clueless, but it's usually well-intentioned. See Gal Gadot's imagined video from the early days of the pandemic. But in the process, they circumvented the vast Oscar machinery that has arisen since those early Miramax days. The Academy's regulations are a bit like the Talmud. 
maddeningly specific in certain places. Mailings about a film may include only unembellished, creditless synopsis and vague in others. There's even a clause that basically says, mind the spirit of these rules as they apply to things we haven't even thought of yet. Every year, campaign strategists call the Academy asking if certain things are okay, such as menus and party invitations. If anyone with a good Rolodex could bypass this system, then what's the point of the Oscar consultants hired to navigate it? But it also seemed to open a larger question of who the true underdog is in an Oscar race. Is it the actress without a studio or millions of dollars behind her, or the one with studio support and fewer connections? Gina Price Bithwood, the director of The Woman King, a blockbuster released by Sony, argued the latter in The Hollywood Reporter, addressing Riseboro's nomination directly. My issue with what happened is how people in the industry use their social capital. She said, adding, people say, well, Viola and Danielle had studio behind them, but we just very clearly saw that social capital is more valuable. Perhaps, but surely starring in a $50 million critically acclaimed studio film is valuable too, and is the entire reason that those working in obscurity make a play for an Oscar. At the end of the day, the campaign game is about finding the most compelling narrative, one that inspires people to root for you. The Academy most likely upheld Riseborough's nomination because she didn't personally violate campaign rules, but few expected the ruling to go any other way. Penalizing those involved with the campaign would mean a move against Hollywood's biggest names, whom the Academy needs to star in their movies and show up to the awards. This town doesn't move without actors, one veteran strategist told me. If they came down on this campaign, well, that's an indictment of Charlize Theron, Kate Winslet, Edward Norton. But the truth is, if I did it, I would be in Academy jail. It's worth remembering that the Academy Awards were created as a marketing device to entice people to see movies and, like football, used to air on Monday nights to boost ratings. This is not the Nobel Peace Prize, Lundberg told me. That doesn't necessarily stop Oscar winners from acting as if it is. At best, a nomination can extend the theatrical release of a film and drive more people to watch it long after it's left theaters. But it's just that, an ad created by a professional organization to sell you on movies even if, and especially as, their quality is in evident decline. Every year, everyone talks about what a magnificent year this has been for movies, Angelotti told me, and the public is going, really? Many of the films nominated this year are a product of the COVID years. Spielberg wouldn't have made The Fablemans if he wasn't stuck at home contemplating mortality and wondering which stories he hadn't told. The answer turned out to be his own. Everything Everywhere All at Once had to shut down production early and film Yao over Zoom, which is also how Blanchett learned to conduct for Tar. 
the Banshees of Inishin, filmed on remote islands with a small cast, was an especially pandemic-friendly production. Movie theaters, meanwhile, have closed faster than audiences could keep track of, and 2022 box office numbers fell short of the year's meager predictions. Theater attendance has shrunk by half in the last four years. All of this is a reason to ask just how much Oscar's drama, this year or any other, is manufactured by the very people whose job it is to get us to watch. The Riseboro controversy, though, unpleasant for those involved, has ultimately led to many more people seeing to Leslie. Momentum Pictures re-released the film in select theaters. Looking ahead, some wonder if the only way to save the movie business from itself is to go back to the innocent pre-Miramax days of more restrained Oscar campaigns. If running a rule-abiding campaign can't be done without millions of dollars, then the next logical step would be addressing those iniquities. But instituting spending caps is a non-starter, as it would mean big losses for the trades, screening rooms, caterers, consultants, stylists, and any other entity that benefits from award business. Who's going to call the New York Times and the Hollywood Reporter and say we can't take out ads anymore, Angelotti said. That's called restriction of trade. I don't see it as a viable situation. Not to mention that many Oscar strategists are themselves voting members of the marketing and public relations branch of the Academy. This year, Terry Press is once again working with Spielberg, who has a well-documented aversion to Oscar campaigning. She admitted that spending limits were an intriguing, if unrealistic, idea. I'm cutting off my nose to spite my face here, she said, but I would love to see somebody go all the way and spend nothing on any of this. Because then, she added, it's really going to be about the movie. The author, Irina Alexander, is a contributing writer for the magazine. Her last feature article was about Carol Serebrennikov, a Russian filmmaker navigating widespread calls for a boycott of Russian culture. Javier Yeyen is an illustrator and a designer based in Barcelona, Spain. He's known for his translation of complex ideas into simple images, often with a playful tone. And now I'll read the talk section. Interview the interviewer David Marchese. Paul Ryan says even MAGA diehards believe Trump can't win in 2024. And David writes For a good long time during the George W. Bush and Obama presidencies, Paul Ryan was considered one of the intellectual leaders and shining stars of the Republican Party. Ryan, Mitt Romney's 2012 vice presidential running mate, was a stalwart advocate of lower taxes, entitlement reform, and hawkishness on the deficit. Then Donald Trump arrived and blew everything up. A now 53-year-old Wisconsinite, Ryan, who served as Speaker of the House from 2015 to 2019 before retiring to family life, think tanks, academia, and 
corporate boards, went from policy captain to anachronism. His affable Reaganite focus on supply-side economics out of place on a remade political stage of continual conflict-baiting and culture war outrage. Recently, though, Ryan has re-entered public life, though only partly of his own choosing. His behind-the-scenes concerns about the direction of Fox News, he's on the Fox Corporation Board of Directors, were put on display as part of the Dominion defamation lawsuit against the company. He's also trying to prevent the Republican presidential nomination from again being won by Trump, with whom he had a tortured, if politically fruitful, relationship. And he is now touting a new book, American Renewal, a conservative plan to strengthen the social contract and save the country's finances, which he edited with Angela Rachidi. I always look at the glass as half full, Ryan says about our current political moment, but one of the biggest challenges right now is our fundamentally unserious politics. David asks, I just read your old book, The Way Forward, and in it you're saying that the Republican Party needs to be more than just a party of opposition. That was in 2014. Do you have reason to believe the party of today is any closer to where you'd like it to be? No, you're right. It isn't the case. Politics is supposed to be about ideas, principles, and policies, and it should be aspirational and optimistic. We've gone in the opposite direction. Politics has become more performance art than persuasion. My side of the aisle, the people who do well these days, are the people who do culture war politics. Culture war politics can get you your vote coalition, but it requires that you play identity politics, and identity politics is immoral. It's by definition divisive. If you can divide an electorate so that you get 50 plus 1%, you can win an election, but the other 49% hate you. And it's not how I think democracies will survive in the 21st century. It makes it harder for our politics to be unifying, but I think there are mechanisms to society that will get us back there. Like what kind of mechanisms? I think we're coming to a time of polarization fatigue, of problems mounting and not getting solved, and voters going to eventually reward problem solvers. If you're a Trump 2-0, a cultural warrior, and get the passion of the base to win your party's nomination, it's thin gruel from a substance standpoint. I'd like to think that people can be a Reagan 2-0 an aspirational, inclusive, and unifying figure who's not afraid to take on policy challenges with serious solutions and work hard at persuading people. I hope that's where it's going. This is not where it is today. David says, when we talk about politicians willing to emulate Trump, part of what we're talking about is political expediency. Isn't that the kind of political expediency, a version of what you and other now anti-Trump Republicans were engaging in when his presidency allowed you to pursue your own policy goals? I know that when this kind of question has been raised with you in the past, you've pointed to the TCJA Supreme Court judges, criminal justice reform, opioid cancer infrastructure bills, 
a lot of regulatory reform, and obviously tax reform, something I worked on for my whole career. But Trump's unassailability within the party is not unrelated to those achievements. So how do you untie that Gordian knot? Ryan says, we, we know now the results of this thesis. We lose. We lost the House because of Trump in 18. We lost the White House in 20 because of Trump. We lost the Senate because of Trump in 20 and 22. What we didn't know then, we spent 2015 building an agenda that we would run on and take to the country. Then Trump won. I thought the man's just become president. He doesn't know anything about government. He's never been involved in it before. So let's help him. Mitch McConnell and I spoke quite a bit in those early hours. We got to help this guy govern. We are learned. We, as we learned what he was like, we decided we're going to put these Jersey barriers on the road. The car is going to scrape the sides, but we're going to get the country moving in the right direction. I put out this massive Gantt chart that my chief of staff designed with me with McConnell's consent. I figured Trump is a construction guy. He'll know how a Gantt chart works. I put together this chart. Here's the agenda. I ran Congress for two years on that Gantt chart. Every time he did some crazy tweet or tried to get Congress to go off on some tangent, I'd always say, no, remember, we have this Gantt chart, and this is what we're supposed to be doing now. So my belief at the time was he won. He didn't know he was going to win. Comey gave us this letter like four weeks out, putting Hillary under investigation, blew the campaign up, and now he's the president of the United States, so let's make this thing work. There's a sidebar on the, on the letter. On October 28th, 2016, four weeks before the election, James Comey, then director of the FBI, sent a letter to Congress about having learned of the existence of emails relevant to the investigation to Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was Secretary of State. And David says, was there a point when you decided your policy objectives were not worth the larger risk that he represented? The problem is he was president. I wasn't leaving. It's not as if you can just pull a president from office. There is a mechanism for that, David says. Yes, I'm familiar with that. But he was the president of the United States. We needed to make it work. That was my strong conviction. Did I think he was going to improve or grow on the job? Yeah. He didn't. It was after I left when he really went off the rails. He was getting rid of the people who were telling him what he needed to hear, not what he wanted to hear. He steadily eroded the quality of people around him. The first year of his presidency was a lot different than the fourth year. I left after his second year. You described putting safeguards around Trump. Can you be specific about catastrophes you helped avoid? I remember one day he was going to pull out of NAFTA. Brian laughs. I had to call him. You will crash the stock market today if you pull out of NAFTA. He was going to veto Section 702 of FISA. 
Section 702 is the part of the law that we use to surveil foreign terrorists in foreign jurisdictions, not U.S. citizens. He watched something on TV where some commentator said, I can't believe Donald Trump is signing this bill. This is what they use to spy on him. Then he puts a tweet out saying, I'm vetoing it. We already had the bill on the floor. It was expiring at the end of the week. We were going to go dark on terrorists. We had to talk him out of it for the next three hours. It's Pompeo and Kelly and Devin Nunes getting on the phone, explaining to him how he's wrong, and we got to sign this bill. Those are two stories off the top of my head. We would have gone dark on terrorists. We would have pulled out of NAFTA without telling the Mexicans and the Canadians. You've talked elsewhere about the need for the Republican presidential primary field to stay small so that the vote doesn't split and then Trump wins. But beyond not Trump, is there a person whom you'd like to see support consolidate behind? Too early to say. The key is that we consolidate the field in time. I don't think you can prevent people from getting in the race. What the party donors and influencers can do is whittle the field down faster. You got 6% in Iowa. You got 8% in New Hampshire. Get out of this race. But I don't think Trump is going to get the nomination. The ace in the hole is that he's unelectable. Even most MAGA knows this. We're far better with X person. You're on the board of Fox, which has had more than a little to do with amplifying the performance art politics that you say is a problem. I understand the point you've made in other interviews, which is the pluralistic need for private media companies to serve different markets. But are there ways in which the symbiotic nature of Fox News and Republican politics could function differently so the result is healthier discourse? I do hope for that, and I think about it a lot. One of the reasons why I chose to be on this board is because I believe you have to have a strong enough commercial cultural institution in society to stand up against a left-wing takeover. That means people like me need to fight for the soul of our party. I don't agree with a lot of the editorial guys. I don't believe in this blood and soil nationalism. I think it's dangerous. I'm a traditional, classic, liberal, pro-life, strong national defense, free market conservative, which means constitutional, limited government. The question is, can we compete for better content and offer a better version of conservatism? I don't take my toys and go away and say, I think Tucker was wrong. It's free competition for ideas. I believe at the end of the day, people want substance. Angertainment only goes so far. David, is Fox talking, taking the Dominion lawsuit as a sign that anything went too far? Ryan, I don't want to touch that. That's ongoing litigation. I'm not going to get into that. If you were in Speaker Kevin McCarthy's position, how would you be strategizing about how to get anything done? Because wrangling this Republican caucus seems hellacious. To be good at these jobs, you've got to be willing to lose these jobs. And Kevin's going to face moments like that. You're going to have to have blow-ups. 
the debt limit and the fiscal year appropriation bills, they'll get through. Crisis will be averted. But after that, there's an opportunity to help shape the presidential election. Get your party focusing on ideas and policies and offering it to the country. Do it before a nominee arrives so that if we win the, that election, we have shown the country that our solution, what our solutions look like. But that's going to take real leadership, real ideas, real plans. And you'll have to get past the demagoguery that is dominating the debate these days. Do you think McCarthy is willing to lose the speaker job? I do. People in the press think he's only wanted this job. He's finally got the job. He wants to hang out of the job. Knowing Kevin, I believe that now that he has the job, he understands its responsibilities and fulfill, will fulfill those responsibilities. House Republicans are talking about investigating the January 6th commission. You're in Woodward and Costa's book with tears in your eyes on that day saying that Trump formatted this. What's your perspective on the value of that potential investigation? Let's stop carrying Donald Trump's baggage. He's not fit for the job, and if we nominate him again, we're guaranteed a loss. We have basically two bases. We have the MAGA base and the suburban base. Those two give us presidencies. You have to have both. You will kill your suburban base like we did in the Senate and the House in this last election if we're anywhere near Donald Trump. Let's dump him so that we can win and actually advance our principles. I would not mess with Trump stuff. Back in your home state, Republican politicians have given credence to election denialism. Do you see any a productive way forward for the party there that doesn't involve fealty to Trump and Trumpism? I think people got sucked into this narrative, and people either believe it or repeat it for political survival to fuel ambition. Those are bad reasons. It's important to temper your ambition and put it below your principles, below evidence and facts. But in this digital age, it's hard to sort myth from facts, demagoguery from truth, because there are very few trusted objective sources of information. Lawyers will come up to me at restaurants in Wisconsin and say, is that true? They'll have some fantastical conspiracy theory. I was at a supper club at Christmas, and this lawyer I've known for pretty much my whole life asked me all these crazy things. Mike Gableman, he was the judge who ran the investigation in the election in Wisconsin. My point is a lot of people get sucked into this, and it's a bad chapter, and it's populism that is not tethered to principles. We just have to get past it. There are valid arguments to be made that the economic policies that you believe in were not healthy for Wisconsin and contributed to the bitterness that enables demagoguery and angry populism. I'm curious about the extent to which you see a link between the two. That's a really good question. Would I do things differently now knowing what I know? Yes. I had four auto factories in my district. There are zero now. Two issues that are big populist issues for the left and the right, where a classical liberal like me may look out of tune, are immigration and trade. I voted for every trade agreement that came through. I helped pass a bunch. The problem is 
that we need free trade agreements and to open markets to our products and services. But we have to hold people to account when they renege and cheat on the rules. One vote that I think about is China and the WTA. I thought putting China in the WTO was going to open them up and make them get closer to democracy and capitalism. That's a vote I might take back. The point I'm trying to make is the less is not the lesson is not don't do trade, it's do trade but enforce the rules, get reciprocity and go after cheaters. Let me ask the question another way. Some neighbor of yours in Janesville who used to work at the GM factory might be thinking, the factory didn't shut down because another country was cheating. NAFTA didn't work for me. What's the political argument you make to that guy in 2023? $4 gas is what killed that plant, and they consolidated the jobs to Texas, so it wasn't a Mexico thing. But I get the point. My answer to people in Janesville is we have to produce things and sell them to the rest of the world if we want to have a good economy, good jobs, and good wages. Can we get good deals with other countries so we can have that? That means those other countries have to give us access to their markets if we give them access to our markets, and we have rules that we play by and enforce those rules. That takes three sentences to explain. Three sentences versus one demagogic sentence in hard, is hard politics. But you can succeed. I know the area I'm from. It's not exactly the free trade capital of America. But I did very well politically. I had to communicate and work hard. It's easier to demagogue. Unfortunately, we have a lot of performers in politics. And we don't have good political leadership. Biden and Trump are both horrible on confronting the coming debt crisis, for example. They're both playing entitlement demagoguery in a way that means we won't get anything done. Is entitlement reform remotely politically feasible? Both McCarthy and McConnell have said they're not touching it. Kevin, I think, was saying this in the context of the debt limit. We don't use some brinksmanship moment to reform Medicare and Social Security. I assume Mitch was talking about this Rich Scott bill. That's not even really a bill. It's a process thing that lets, doesn't make any sense. Mitch is trying to make sure that that doesn't define us. They're right to say that it's not the context for entitlement reform. But what the majority should do is educate constituents about these problems and then offer solutions. Biden and Trump are not acting presidential on one of the most important issues facing our country, our debt crisis, and the unraveling of our social contract. A smart move is to offer solutions. That's why we wrote this book at AE1. This is a conservative version on how to solve this problem. And I grant that people aren't going to agree with these things, but they should bring their own solutions to the table. I'll read a poem. Form, with a small capital F, Form by Ryan Eckes. Filing for unemployment again at the end of Teacher Appreciation Week, along with 50 million other people, I almost put an air conditioner in the window backwards. 
on switch facing outside. I almost cooled off the whole city. What are you doing? My friend said gently, flying down Delaware Ave into the night. I appreciate you, I said, waving goodbye on my way back to the form. Were you absent from work when work was available? No, never. I would never try to love my friends every single day, skipping stones across the water for pleasure, one dream after another. Why would I ever want life to just get better and better and better? Did you or will you receive vacation pay? The car's parked, doors locked, the room is empty, the fridge is closed, the day is long, the pain is old. When will you learn? said the carcass of the ATM. Anne Boyer is a poet and essayist. Her memoir about cancer and care, The Undying, won a 2020 Pulitzer Prize in general nonfiction. Ryan Eckes is a poem, poet from Philadelphia. He's the author of General Motors, Split Lip Press, 2018, Find Nothing, Albion Books, 2019, and Wet Money, Radical Paper Press, 2020, all of which can be downloaded free from the Internet Archive. His work can also be read in Prolet, Protein Magazine, Wax9 Journal, Tripwire, Bedfellows, and elsewhere. Eckes has worked as an adjunct professor and labor organizer in education, and he's the editor of Radiator Press. 2016, he was the recipient of a Pew Fellowship in the Arts. And we'll end with a letter to Judge John Hodgman and a ruling. Remember, he doesn't offer advice. He delivers justice. Stephen writes, My daughter Belle doesn't like that I update the page-a-day calendar in the morning. She thinks it should be done before bed. It's the effing birds calendar, which features beautiful drawings of birds saying obscene insults. The judge writes, I'm not here to judge your parenting. I let my kids grow up around Kenny Shopson, the very foul-mouthed and wise proprietor of Shopson's General Store. Swearing is part of life, I realized. They might as well learn from the best. I trust you're offering Bell coaching regarding context and restraint to go with this dirty bird calendar. But she's still wrong. You tear off a page a day calendar in the morning. That's when we adults need the liberating charge of profanity. A chickadee announcing correctly, this sucks and I hate it. If Belle doesn't understand this, let her get her own effing calendar. Thank you for joining us for the New York Times Magazine. My name is Bill McCann. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.